Hey Northsite, it's Jaden back with you again. I've removed the ridiculous mustache from the last video because it's no longer November. And uh, I'm here to talk to you about uh, the beginning of Jesus's ministry and also the call of his first disciples, two really intricate and cool stories uh, that sort of set up the rest of Jesus's ministry. So contextually where we need to know that we're in the Bible, we're in Matthew 4 right now. And what we just read about in Matthew 4 was you read about the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. And so if we think about the, if we think about like a comparison to the, the Spider-Man movie with Tom Holland, um, we can think about this being like Tony Stark coming, taking everything, all of the super suit away from Spider-Man. And he's sort of left to his own devices to figure out how to be Spider-Man again. And it seems sort of like Jesus in this previous example, again, from that wonderful teaching from Peter, is that Jesus is now learning how to be the son of God and how to go out and sort of served as like a testing grounds to make sure that, yes, you are the son of God. Are you prepared for this ministry? And so now in Matthew 4, we're transitioning into that actual ministry itself. And so Matthew 4 starts off like this. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, the land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of the death, a light has dawned. And from that time on, Jesus began to re preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. So what we know at this time is that John the Baptist was also recently put into prison somewhere somewhere near Galilee. We don't know exactly if it's in Galilee, but we know that it's somewhere near there. And it's interesting that in this story, Jesus is moving to Galilee because there was the Tetrarchy of Herod. So Tetra is uh, a word meaning four, a Greek word meaning four, and then Archi. Um, the word Her Herodian Tetrarchy was formed following the death of King Herod, which happened in about 4 BCE. Um, and his kingdom was divided between his four sons. So I'm going to mess these names up. Herod Archelaus uh, as Entharch, Herod Antipas. Uh, and Philip as the Tetrarch's inheritance, while Herod's sister Salome briefly ruled as well in an area. So four different rulers, sons and a daughter as well of Herod ruling in this land. And it's been thought that since John was arrested, the reason Jesus went to Galilee was to continue the ministry of John the Baptist that had been taken away from him because he was sent to prison. Um, we don't know whether or not John had been executed or not at this time, but what we assume is that Jesus is going to continue that ministry John had started. Uh, and so I'm going to throw a map on the screen here so you can kind of get an idea of Jesus's pathing, where he's going. And you can see from the phrases beyond the Jordan, uh, you can see where Galilee lies in relation to the Jordan River. And on this other more detailed map that I'll show right now, you can see the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Um, and what it's worth noting is it's in Israel. So Galilee is near Israel. This is contextually where we're talking about um, on the earth. So lower Asia, upper Africa area. And 
What's worth noting too about this time is that Galilee was a very progressive land. If we were to use a more modern term, we'd say that Galilee was a very liberal land. Um, one that was very highly populated. There's some literature that says there were roughly 3 million people living in Galilee at that time. And the idea is too that most of those people were Gentiles. There were not very many Jews in that area. And so it, get, it got the term, the Galilee of the Gentiles, or what we see in the actual passage um, is that exact phrasing, Galilee of the Gentiles. And so just for context sake, Galilee was about 50, 64 square miles in size, which is about 165 square kilometers. Uh, Saskatoon itself is 228 square kilometers. So on just the east side of Saskatoon, just half of Saskatoon, 3 million people. And that is a crazy dense population to think about. So very highly populated, very liberal, very progressive region. And so Jesus left Nazareth, as you can see again from his pathing picture, he left Nazareth and went to dwell in Capernaum. It, from this, or from the, some of the literature I read, it seemed like the people of Nazareth actually rejected Jesus and everything that he was preaching. And so what he was forced to do is leave his home to go make his home in Capernaum. Now, what's interesting is that's also where Matthew lived. And we can see that in Matthew 9, verses 1 to 9. And Peter also had a house here. We see that in Matthew 8, 14, Mark 1, 29, and Mark 2, verse 1. And so it's kind of cool that Matthew includes this in his gospel. It's sort of that mentality of, hey, that person, that really famous person mentioned that I live there. Um, it's like anytime you're watching a movie or a film, I remember watching Whose Line Is It Anyway, and Saskatoon or Saskatchewan get mentioned, and you get really excited because like, hey, I, I live there. I know I know something about that. And so that just kind of gives us some context and I guess excitement that, hey, Matthew's excited about where he lives and excited about that, like a part of his life gets to be included in the story. Uh, this is also where the verse uh, in Matthew 8, verse 20, where Jesus said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Uh, this idea that in Capernaum, he really didn't have much of a home. He just sort of found places to lay his head late at night, wherever he could find housing, that's where he would stay. And so going back to the passage, we see the quotation marks um, from a verse from Isaiah 9, verses 1 to 2. Um, and so this idea here um, is that nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon he who is distressed as when, as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali and afterwards more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan in the Galilee of the Gentiles. Those people who walked in the darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death upon them, a light has shone. And so Matthew saw this as the fulfillment of that passage that we have this very dark, very progressive very Gentile land. And now we have Jesus entering that land and Jesus entering that land and showing them the light of the kingdom of God. And what we then see from that as we transition further and further is that the first ministry that Jesus actually did in Galilee was a baptizing ministry um, with his disciples. And we see that in John 3 verse 22 and John 4 verse 1 to 2. And so this is sort of the beginning of this fulfillment of what the prophet Isaiah was prophesizing about, about the Galilee of Gentiles being in a dark spot and Jesus coming and providing the light of the kingdom of heaven. When we get to verse 17, verse 17 is kind of a weird one. Um, at least it seemed to me where we have a lot of, 
old-timey talk, Old Testament talk, King James Version talk, where we're using a lot of confusing words and locations, different things like that. And then we get to verse 17, and it seems to be more one of those classic New Testament, oh, I can apply that to my life type verses. And so I described it as a general description of the message that Jesus was preaching at that time. Um, Interestingly, a lot of churches or a lot of pastors get into the debate between preaching versus teaching. Well, which one is it? Am I here sitting in front of my video camera preaching to you or am I teaching you about something? And what is the difference? So preach, that word is translated from the Greek word kerousane, uh, which is the word for a herald's proper proclamation from a king. So a lot of big words there. And then karu or karux is the Greek word for herald. Uh, and the herald, what their job was, was the man who brought a message directly from the king. And so if we think about what Jesus is doing here, he's bringing the message of God, the king, the heavenly father. And so he is actually preaching. Anytime you're bringing the message forward from the God, from God or from the heavenly father, bringing the message from a king, you are preaching. And so the, the phrase, hark the herald angels sing, that, that very title of a very famous Christmas song, the angels in that song are the heralds. They're bringing the message of the king and bringing a message directly from God, and it's through song. And so hark, sort of a, hey, listen to me, and then herald angels sing, herald being uh, those ones, those angels that are bringing a message. Uh, what I feel like that does is bring infinitely more pressure to the information that I'm trying to communicate with you. Um, now I am preaching and I'm bringing a message from the king. And that is something that it should not be taken lightly. What we also see in this passage here is we see a call to repentance. And what's really cool and really interesting is Jesus uses the exact wording and language that John the Baptist also used in Matthew 3 verse 2. In Matthew 3, verse 2, we see, In those days John the Baptist came, preaching the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who's spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. And again, going back to that idea that Jesus was just continuing where John the Baptist left off before he was put into jail, you have to wonder what the people of Galilee were thinking. They just took John, they hated him, they threw him in jail, and some other dude just shows up claiming the exact same message. Like, haven't we heard this before? The exact same message. Uh, another kind of interesting idea about this last kind of passage is some people try to make the distinction that in this passage, Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is near. And potentially, people argue that that has a different meaning than the kingdom of God. And I don't know if it does. Um, what it does kind of portray to us is that Jewish custom at that time was to not name God directly. And what that would do is confirm or I guess line up with the fact that Matthew, a Jew, was writing this book, this gospel for other Jews. And so for him, it would be inconsistent to call it the kingdom of God because then he would be naming God directly. And so the quotation of kingdom of heaven lines up with what we know about Matthew. Some of the takeaways from this passage, from this first chunk, Jesus's own people of Nazareth rejected him. Um, I think that happens a lot in our modern church that we see people, I don't know, being offended or leaving the church. It happened a little bit to my family as well, where we just had to transition churches to find a different location. It's part of the reason I found my way to the north site. 
that's something that I think we as Christians need to realize is that Jesus also encountered resistance from people that were supposed to love and support him. The other thing that we need to recognize is that Jesus started his ministry in the hub of the Gentiles. And maybe there's some significance in saying that our ministry should also happen mostly outside of the church in uncomfortable and maybe even sinful locations where people have already rejected the presence of God or might not even be aware of their sin. And so now transitioning into the first call of the disciples, Matthew 4, 18 to 25 reads like this. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew, and they were casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once, they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in, this, in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. What's interesting immediately to me is that this is not the first time that Jesus has met these individuals. Um, if we look at some of the other gospels, which this is a great reason why we have four gospels to compare and draw information from, four perspectives to draw information from, is that Jesus actually met these guys in John 1, 35 to 42, and also in Luke 5, verse 3. And so what we would expect is because these are fishermen, we would expect them to be a little bit poor. So in the case of Simon called Peter and Andrew, we would expect them to be a little bit poor. But for the other two individuals, for James and for John, they were sons of Zebedee. And what's worth noting about Zebedee is that he, we have evidence of, as shown in Mark 1 verse 20, that he employed other fishermen. So though, yes, fishermen were responsible for paying for themselves, feeding themselves, paying taxes, giving food to the government at the time um, so that they could also feed everyone else, though those things were in existence, it's likely that the Zebedee boys were probably fairly wealthy. They were not of the poorer ones. Um, the way fishing was done in this time is very interesting. Uh, they would have been fishing using circular nets that had anchors around the edges of them and a rope tied in the middle so that when they threw their net into the water, the fishermen would simply pull up on the rope and that would cause those outer weights to draw in, capture the fish, and then they'd be able to pull it all up. Sort of the message that I drew from this is that God calls people during their busiest times that all four of these men were fishing, busy working, and God said, hey, now is the time you need to come and follow me. And so busyness is not an excuse to not do God's work. In fact, it's a reason to listen more intentionally for it. Uh, Kaylee and I recently adopted or, or uh, brought into our soon-to-be family in April, uh, our adorable little three-legged golden retriever, Kygo. And we were trying to train him to do a few tricks. And one of the tricks that you train a dog to do is come. Dogs are extremely loyal in that regard. And so what Kaylee and I started doing is because we're wedding planning right now, we would often go downstairs to try and get away from Kygo, as well as Tressa's other two dogs, Nova and Ginger. And 
what <laughs> we just try to get some peace and quiet. And what would happen is I'm a very loud human being. Kaigo would often hear us all the way upstairs and his little three-legged self would fall down two flights of stairs just to come and be with us. Just because he heard our voices, he wanted to be in our presence and be around us. And I wonder if we as humans, if we were able to express that same level of excitement and loyalty when we heard our father's voice, I wonder what that would look like if we would come stumbling down the stairs or drop everything to immediately do what the father was asking of us. There's some other examples I've found as well, and I'll throw this list up on screen, um, of what when God calls people or when Jesus calls people while they're doing something. So for Saul, he was looking after his father's donkeys. David was keeping his father's sheep. The shepherds were guarding their flocks at night. Amos was farming in Tekoa. Matthew was working at the tax collector's table. Moses was tending his father-in-law's flock. And Gideon was threshing wheat. And so all of those people are examples of, I will drop everything at this time because God needs me to do something. And I think that is the key takeaway from this main passage with these disciples. Now, what's kind of worth noting is Jesus's offer of follow him would have been something that Peter and Andrew would have been familiar with. Um, basically, what he was offering them was education at the feet of a rabbi. That's something that happened very often in those times. But what didn't happen very often was the rabbi approaching and asking them to follow him. Usually what it was, was people would approach the rabbi and say, I would like to follow you, which is what we see with a lot of the other people around Galilee is they followed him. But for the disciples, the offer of the rabbi saying, hey, come and follow me, that was a strange concept. And part of the reason it was a strange concept, if we go back to the Greek herald idea, that definition of a herald, what Jesus was basically doing by asking people to follow him was claiming the position of a king. So that was a huge ask. That's something that we need to understand the context of. Jesus is really asking a lot of these two men. Um, following Jesus also means a few things. It, it means you have to leave things behind. Uh, the Samaritan woman left her pitcher. Matthew left his tax table. Blind Bartimaeus left behind even his cloak to follow Jesus. Uh, James and John both left their father. There are things that we will have to give up in order to follow Jesus. And I think that's something that's challenging, but we need to be very transparent with, with new Christians that you will have to give things up if you want to follow Jesus. As we transition to verse 23 and verse 25, we see Jesus healing the sick, something that he commonly did. And so I found this interesting, but synagogues would often give a visitor, especially someone who was distinguished, they would give them a chance to speak. That if someone important seemed to walk in, hey, you, you come and speak in our synagogue. And so this would have been normal to see Jesus just come and teach. He had a bunch of people following him. And so the words teaching and preaching, again, we go back to this previous example, they're both used here. The difference between the words teaching and preaching are as follows. Preaching is the uncompromising proclamation of certainties. Teaching is the explanation of the meaning and significance of them. And so a proclamation of I am the son of God and an explanation and reading reasoning for that would have been the difference between teaching and preaching. And I think we need to take that into account where in this teaching, I'm explaining what's going on. I'm explaining the meaning and significance of the nets, of why the disciples are following Jesus. I'm explaining why it's important Jesus is warning, but I'm not really preaching in this case. I'm, I'm teaching you about the story. And so that distinguish is, I think, important, but one of those details that 
we probably overlook because what we see with Jesus is that he always followed the same pattern. It was always teach, then preach, then heal. And and I think those are things that if we want to apply those to our modern church, we need to take that shape as well. And the healing can be the hardest part, but that may be a period of prayer. It may be a period of communion. We can have other methods of healing than simply healing a paralyzed man. I know I don't have the giftings or the level of faith necessary right now to do that. What's interesting here is that uh, in Matthew as well, there is a distinguishment between healing the sick and healing the demon possessed. And what this demonstrates for us is two things. It demonstrates for us that Jesus had the authority over the damage done by the fall of man, and he had authentic power over all of creation. So healing the sick, well, sickness was bred out of Adam and Eve's sin. And so Jesus has control and power over that. And then demon possession, that's telling us that Jesus has control over all creation as well. And what I find interesting about this is it's shocking how little attention Jesus gets from his healing. He's, <laughs> the comments made in Matthew are very sort of like they pass over or glaze over this idea that, oh yeah, Jesus just healed paralyzed people. Things that were uncurable or very unknown or very little or misunderstood. Matthew just kind of presents it as like, oh yeah, Jesus cured all of these seemingly uncurable diseases and it was no big deal. It doesn't matter. Hey, look at what he said. What he said is so much cooler. And that's why it's great to have the other gospels like Luke, the doctor of Luke. Why it's cool to have those different perspectives brought to the table. Different things were valuable to different gospel writers. And so they're presented differently. And I think that's cool. Uh, one of the debates that comes out of this passage, and I'll sort of leave you with a couple final thoughts after this one, is that the mention of demon possession, which isn't focused on nearly as much in the Old Testament as it is in the New Testament, uh, the only other mention of it uh, is when Saul was troubled by his spirit. That's really the only Old Testament mention. And so some people believe that what happened when Jesus came was that God gave the devil greater allowance to afflict man in this way to give greater evidence of Jesus's credentials as the Messiah. Another thought, some believe that God allowed the devil a greater allowance to afflict man in this way to rebuke the Sadducees who did not believe in supernatural beings such as angels and demons. Third thought, some believe that there was no greater allowance in these days at all and that there is the same amount of demon possession today, although it's not recognized as such. Fourth thought, some believe that there is far less demon possession in cultures that have been under the influence of the gospel for years and far more in pagan and or animistic cultures. Fifth and final thought is that some believe Satan himself is not interested in a strategy of widespread demon possession of humans in the contemporary Western world because he finds the anonymity and spiritual skepticism, skepticism as more effective tools. So five kind of thoughts to, to think about, about why demon possession might be mentioned more in the New Testament or less in the New Testament. Why we're really uncertain of a lot of the details of demon possession. And so I'll leave you with these couple of thoughts. This is sort of, I, I've done the teaching. I'm going to transition to the preaching and then I'll leave the healing up to you to figure out what healing looks like after hearing these words. So the preaching part of this is there's a couple of takeaways from this story. One is that Jesus began his ministry in one of the most difficult and adverse locations, and he took over after John the Baptist. He also used the phrasing to go and fish men to his disciples, 
we were told later to go and make fishers of all men. And so I wonder if the job of us here is to continue where Jesus left off, which was often the people that needed him most. And I wonder if it's beneficial for us to go to those locations where God's presence is the most absent. Uh, second takeaway, the disciples' immediate following of Jesus represents what loyalty to him should look like. And then the third thing I want you to think about is whenever you're having conversations with people or, or thinking about even teaching to the North site, um, some ideas of how teaching or how Jesus did things is important. He taught us, he preached to us, he healed us. Preaching is the uncompromising proclamation of certainties. Teaching is the explanation of the meaning and significance of them. I hope you have an awesome rest of your day whenever you choose to watch this, and I hope to see you soon at the North site. Peace.